Well, good morning. How are you doing? Are you well? My name's Anna. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, oh, there we go. And um, I am so looking forward to continuing this series that we're in at the moment. And each week we are looking at a chapter of Genesis. Uh, but I wonder if you remember back to exactly one month ago. Do you remember what that day was? Anyone? Valentine's Day, yes. <laughs> but it was also it was also our Vision Sunday. And so one month ago exactly marks our anniversary of reading through the Bible together as a community. Pastor Mike, uh, instead of setting a destination for where God was heading us, uh, calling us to, he made us look internal for a moment and think about the transformation that can happen within. And the question was really around who are we becoming? Who are you becoming this year? And we believe as a church that by uh, planting ourselves in the scriptures, by reading just a little bit of the Bible each day, it will help us to become more like Jesus. So I hope you've been enjoying that journey. One month in, congratulations. Uh, you have completed Genesis and you're in Exodus at the moment if you're still with us. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, we would love for you to join us every day by reading a part of the Old Testament and a little bit of the New Testament. All of the information's on our website for that. But if you're like me, when you read the Bible, sometimes it seems that there's more questions than answers. Anyone else with me? You're questioning, you're wondering, what is going on here? And something that's really cool is that it's really important to ask the questions because when we ask the questions of what is happening, what is going on here or why did they do that or is God really like that, what it does is it helps us to go deeper into the scripture. It helps, helps us to understand fully what is going on. And as Tanya mentioned, uh, we have Alpha coming up. And Alpha's kind of mascot, if you will, is a massive question mark. It's a big question mark saying that bring your questions, bring your questions around faith, around God, around purpose, and we want to explore them with you. And just to let you know, we have 120 or so of our young adults doing Alpha at the moment. We're five weeks in, we meet here on a Tuesday night in our small groups, and we do exactly that. We ask the big questions and together we wrestle with it. Uh, and so I just, I couldn't recommend Alpha enough. Uh, for those people in your life who you know might have questions, trust that Alpha is such a beautiful vehicle to bring them into a space where that is wanted and it's accepted. When I was in Bible college, and obviously you ask a lot of questions in Bible college, but when I was in Bible college, one of my uh, lecturers, he always used this line. He said, now that you are in Bible college, I don't want to make you all a bunch of clever devils. He said, the thing about studying the Bible is never about knowledge. It's always about understanding and deeper transformation. He was like, I don't want you to just know more. I want you to become more. And so today, as we're kind of in this teaching moment in Genesis 4, as we're looking at these big questions and we're trying to uh, understand what God is saying through it, remember, it's never just for the sake that you can go away from this place knowing more about the Bible. It's more about knowing more about God and having his relationship with you strengthened so that then you're able to do all that he is calling you to do in your everyday. Sound good? Yes. So 
There's a bunch of big questions that we've been walking through. Genesis 1, we ask the question, where do we come from? The question in Genesis 2 was around, well, what is my purpose here? What am I called here to do? Question number three last week in Genesis 3 was around, well, what went wrong? And then this week, we're looking at the question of how do we get it wrong? So some uplifting things coming today. I was um, visiting a small group this week, and I, we were talking about the Bible and reading the Bible, and one of the ladies said to one of the other ladies in the small group, ooh, Genesis is a bit raunchy. And I said, ooh. And then the other one said to her, I know, it sounds like days of our lives. And so I thought, how hilarious. If that doesn't whet your appetite for reading the Bible, I don't know what will. Um, But we are in for, again, a very riveting story this morning. So would you turn with me to Genesis 4? It's right at the beginning. And we're coming to a story that is pretty well known. Um, But what I'm hoping is if we walk through it slowly and deeply this morning, we'll be able to find some more truth and some more understanding. So Genesis 4, it reads, Adam made love to his wife Eve, raunchy, and she became, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the platform, but anyway, um, she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on fa- with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a, wanderless, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So sets the scene. So lots going on there. And when I read that, again, like most of Genesis, I'm asking so many big questions. What is going on? And what Pastor Michael did last week is he said, you know, when we read the story of Adam and Eve, what was the big question that we were asking? What was confusing? What was bizarre? 
And our answer then was that there was a talking snake. Um, But even in this story, there are still some questions of what is going on there. And what I've been noticing and what I really love is when we're reading the Bible um, and we're, we're asking these questions, it's always so important to be part of a community who you are able to bring those questions to. Because questions don't always mean division or doubts. They're just wrestling. And it's really important to do that. And the way that I love to do that is actually in my small group. How often is it when you bring up a question in your small group and then everyone else is like, oh, yeah, I thought that too? Or, oh, actually, I read something cool yesterday that brings light to that question. And so for me in my small group, I love going around and we have this section where we sometimes ask some big questions that's going on. And so if you're not in a small group, I just highly recommend that, especially this year as we're reading through the Bible, it's such a good chance to join a community where you're able to bring those questions, not for shame or embarrassment, but just to be able to nut it out together. And so we pick up this story uh, at the very beginning, and we've set the scene. We kind of know what's going on a bit. So we've got Cain and Abel, and they're the sons of Adam and Eve. Can you imagine what it would be like growing up in that household? Adam and Eve are your parents, and there's no one else around (laughs) except the animals. And so in that family dynamic, we have Abel, and he's a herdsman, and then we have Cain, who is a farmer. And so we kind of get what's going on. And what happens there is Cain then sends, uh, gives out an offering. This is the first time, I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is the first time that we see anyone give an offering to the Lord. Cain is the one who brings forth an offering. And he brings, uh, the text says, some of uh, his fruit. And then Abel brings some of the fat portions of the firstborn. So we read all that. That's all going well. Um, But then we read that God looked on favour at Abel and not on Cain. So what's going on there? Why why is there that comparison? When we were uh, mapping out this series and we were looking at, okay, Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, so on, so on, um, we as a teaching team were kind of working out who was going to preach what. And anyway, it came that I was going to preach this one. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've got the short end of the stick. Cain and Abel, what a stitch up. Um, And so what that causes me to do is dive very deep, very deep into a lot of research. Because when you've got a text like Cain and Abel, you think, oh gosh, I've got to handle this carefully. Uh, And so in my research, I found myself lost in the world of Jewish rabbis who study and know the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, so incredibly well. Um, And they understand the context. And something that one of the rabbis, Rabbi Foreman, who's an expert in this particular part of the text, he brought such amazing clarity to something that I'd never seen before that I have to share with you this morning. He says, Abel offered the best fruits, yet in fact, God never compares Cain to Abel. The Torah merely notes that Cain gave some of his produce to God and that Abel gave his best. Perhaps Cain's average was better than Abel's best. We simply don't know. When God rejects Cain's offering, it was not because Abel's was better. That's important. God compared Cain to Cain, and he found 
Cain's offering wanting more. Cain, who had the spiritual genius to discover the religious gesture of an offering, nonetheless did not give his best. So why is this an important differentiation? I think for us, it's so easy when we're reading the text to go, okay, well, Abel did this, but Cain did that. Or Cain did that, but Abel did this. And what Rabbi Foreman is saying here is that, you know, what, what's important here is not the comparison. It's not looking at, okay, well, Abel did this, therefore it was better than Cain. Because what we know to be true and what we see throughout the whole of the scriptures is this underlying current that God does not look at the outward appearance, he looks at the heart. So what we get a window in is that there's something not right happening in Cain's heart. He could have been holding back something. He could have been doing it as an insurance policy. You know, a lot of agricultural systems at that time, they they gave offering to the gods for favour on their produce. So perhaps it was down that line. He could have been giving that offering out of that heart. We don't know. But all we know is that, as uh, Rabbi Foreman says, God compared Cain to Cain. God looked at the heart of where it was coming from. And the story that comes to mind that's similar to this is when Jesus uh, is looking at what people were giving in terms of a tithe to the temple in the time uh, when Jesus was working on the earth. And what he, he said is he compared this story of this rich man giving a huge sum of money to the temple. But what he elevated was the fact that a widow who had very little gave very little, but it was a lot to her. Her heart was in the right place. The story of the widow's might. And that, what Jesus was showing, is that it doesn't matter the quantity. It doesn't matter how how good it is that you give. What's important is that you do it from a place of honour and of worship out of your heart. So really important for us to not realise that this this is not a story of comparison. So God is not saying for us that we should compare to each other. We should not look at what other people do and think that it is better than us. God is only concerned of what your relationship is like with him, what your posture towards him is, what's going on in your heart. And so, so many of us, we look, um, we look at that and we compare and we, we read this scripture and we think, it's so unfair. Why did God choose one over the other? And Cain is rightly so annoyed by this. I would be annoyed also. I think that the thing is, he he sees the favour on his brother, and so therefore he lets comparison and jealousy and greed and maybe insecurity bubble up inside him. And so he's angry and his face is downcast. That's a way of saying, you know, he is he's, he's furious, but he's also... Uh, in a posture of sadness or depression or sulking or any of those kinds of words. So in this state of anger and pain and frustration, God comes to Cain. And I think what's so beautiful, in even if we walk over that quickly, is the fact that in his time of need, in his questioning, in him feeling like he's failed or that he's not good enough, God comes to him and he speaks to him. And he gives him wisdom in those moments. So we read in verse 6 
and 7, God says, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Again, this is the first time that we're actually introduced to the word sin. We saw the falling short of Adam and Eve and the wrong decisions that were made. But here we see the outworking of actually sin being introduced. And its desire is for us, but the comfort is saying that you must overrule, or you must rule over it. As I was preparing for this, Tim Hanna, if you haven't met Tim yet, he's part of our team at the moment and we're feeling so privileged to have him. Uh, he is uh, acting as a mentor and a coach to Michael Hans and we just love him. He's one of those guys that as soon as he opens his mouth to you, you just, you, you just love him because he's so kind and gentle. And so I sat down with him this week because he's preaching on this text in um, Coolangatta and Brisbane. And we were just going through, you know, what are we going to speak on? What's God showing us? Uh, what research have we done? Kind of just bouncing off one another to get the wheels churning. And he said this little comment that really stuck with me. He kind of said it as a throwaway line and I had my mind blown. And he said that in the creation story, God created light. He said, let there be light. But it's not till days later that God creates the sun and the moon. So what light is he talking about in the beginning? And Tim just kind of moved on and I was just like, <laughs> wait a minute, what? Um, so in those moments, God speaks light out in there into uh, the universe and it, it is formed. And what we know about light is that light is the absence, sorry, what we know about darkness is that darkness is the absence of light. So darkness doesn't have like its own realm or necessarily, but it's the absence of light. And why do I say this? I say this because the language that we read that God says is he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, he doesn't say do what is wrong. Isn't that weird? I don't know if you've noticed that. He says, if you do what is right, then will you not be accepted? Cain's whole life, he's looking for acceptance. Cain is wanting to be known and found and understood like we all are. And God is saying, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Sounds a lot like if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, will you not be filled? This idea of when we walk and do what is right, we will feel a sense of filling and presence and purpose of God. But if you do not do what is right then sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. If we're walking in the light, we feel the presence of God, we know goodness and we're able to make the right decisions in those moments. But when we're not walking in the light, when we're walking in the darkness, that is where sin is. That is where there's that sense that it is going to, um, to desire us, if you will. Sin always has this seemingly magnetic pull to it where we, de we, we feel that desire. And so that's where, what we find when we're walking in the darkness. But luckily, we always have a choice. And luckily there, God says, but you must rule over it, meaning that we can rule over it. But we have a choice. And so from the very beginning, there's this distinguishment that even though there is the presence of sin, 
Even though sin is at the door and its desire is over us, we do not have to be powerless to it. There's the presence there, but it doesn't have to have the last word. We do not need to be powerless. We have in us, through God, the ability to rule over it. And that's very good news. And that's what we see in the life of Jesus, that he comes and he says, it is finished. I have done it. In the sense that he has taken the final word. He hasn't left it with sin. We just sang it. He's walked out of that grave and he has the final word. So Cain has a choice. We all definitely have a choice. What did Cain choose? We pick up in verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Dum, dum, dum. Where is he? So why is God asking, where is Abel? Surely God knows what happened. And it reminds me actually, and it's this exact same Hebrew word that we learned about last week when when God is walking in the, in the garden with Adam and Eve and he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? As though he doesn't know and we think, surely God knows where they are. He's not looking for a physical, where are you? What he's saying is, wait a minute, why have you moved from where I had you? So that's, that's a more accurate translation of those words. I, I thought I had you here. I thought we were all good here. I thought I'd given you the right advice. I thought we were on the same page. Whoa, why have you moved from there? Where is your brother, Abel? Why is he not where I thought we had left him? And so this, this question is asking what went wrong? What choice did you make? And what's Cain's answer? Verse 9. I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? What sass, Cain? <laughs> to God, who obviously knows all. He's the creator God. He's asking you, what happened to your brother? And he's going, oh. It reminded me of this story, actually, in a, a you probably have very similar stories if you have children or if you've been a child, which is all of us. Um, but I was, I was remembering this story that my mum told me of when I was little. I had this obsession with strawberries. I still do. They're delicious. Um, and so she said that one day she came uh, into the kitchen and she saw a bonnet of strawberries empty on the floor and a very little girl with strawberry all over her face. And I did the thing that we all have done, because we learnt it from Cain, is mum said, where are the strawberries, Anna? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) Obviously, with it all over my face. So what is my mum doing there? She's not saying, Anna, I actually don't know where the strawberries are. She's saying, what's going on? What have you done? Come clean. <laughs> and so in those moments, that's, Cain is saying, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What he's doing there is the ripple effect of sin, which is where he's just murdered his brother and now he's lying about it. Sin kind of has that tendency to keep going in our life. We look at Adam when he uh, and Eve fell short and they ate the fruit. And when God asks Adam, what have you done? He says, 
she told me to do it, and points at Eve. And so what does he do? He sins, but then he blames. And so this idea that we actually have this ripple effect of sin in our life, sin often gives birth to more sin, unfortunately. So what do we see the, the consequences to his actions? We pick up in verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain's response to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Not a good outcome for our brother Cain here. Um, but what's interesting and what kind of as a little Bible nerd gets me excited is that we start to see some incredible parallels here. We see some incredible insights when we dive a little bit under the surface of the text and we start to see some of the falling short of man and then the beautiful opportunity and the forgiveness and the grace that is offered in Jesus. And so we're going to just walk through what is this punishment and what is Cain's response. And we're going to see some incredible things in terms of how this relates to our lives and, and what Jesus and scripture in its entirety is giving us. So have you noticed that Cain adds a few extra little punishments to himself? God gives him the punishment of saying that when you work the ground, it will no longer produce crops for you, which is an escalation from the punishment that Adam got in the garden when they said, when you work the land, you will, it'll be a toil and hard work. Now it's escalated to a point where it's not even going to receive or produce any fruit. And then the second punishment that God gives is around the fact that he will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And so he will no longer kind of have this sense of purpose or identity, but he will be a bit lost. So those are the things that God speaks. But then when, when Cain feels the weight of it, he feels the weight of it as well because he adds two more punishments to himself. I don't know why, but he then says, you know, I will be cast out from your presence. And then the second thing that he says towards the end there is that, and whoever finds me will want to kill me. Where did these come from? Why is he now thinking that everyone's out to get him and that he's out of the presence of God? I think when we sin, it is so natural for us. When we fall short, when we make mistakes, when we choose the wrong thing, it is so easy for us to then put distance between us and God. I don't know if you've thought of a time when you willingly have not done what God's asked or you've willingly chose not to do what's right and you feel like you can no longer face God. You feel in those moments like he is very far and you kind of feel like you disqualify yourself from his presence. But what's so important to know especially in what we see in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, is that, yes, while each of us have fallen short of the glory of God, while each of us have the temptation of sin at our doors, and while each of us often maybe choose the wrong thing, the very next verses in Romans 8 
uh, when it's talking about all of us falling short, is that nothing can separate us from the love that is found in Christ Jesus. So even though we disqualify ourselves and we think that the presence of the Lord can have no place in our heart or in our life, we need to remember that nothing actually can separate us from the love of God. The psalmist writes a beautiful psalm, a poem in Psalm 139, where they say, where can I flee from your presence? When I go up to the mountain, you are there. When I go down to the depths, you are there. In other words, when life is going great, you are there. But when things are going not very well or harm is all around me or I'm very angry and my face is downcast and I've made some bad choices, there you are, God. In that psalm, it talks about knowing our innermost being, knowing our every thought. So a God who knows our every thought, who knows our innermost being, who knows that we're so privy to fall short and to sin and to fall into temptation, he also says that nothing can separate you from the love the Father has for us. So naturally, we put some distance in there. We see that in Cain when he says, why are you casting me out of your presence? And then the second thing is this thing around, why does he think everyone's out to get him? Why now is he a target? And I think it's because I would love to suggest that when, when we do the wrong thing, when we sin, when we stuff up, not only do we put distance in there, but then also we can be consumed by fear. Things don't become... Uh, light and easy, they become heavy and anxious. And again, this isn't the picture that God calls us to walk in. You know, there's verses in 2 Corinthians that talks about where the freedom, uh, where the spirit of the Lord is, that there's actually freedom. In Psalm 16, where there's the presence of God is the fullness of joy. In 1 John verses 4 to 16, it's, in chapter 4, it says that the perfect love of God casts out all fear. So these are the things that we need to remember when we put these extra punishments on ourselves, when we twist what God is saying, when we think that because we've done the wrong thing, it disqualifies us from his presence and that we are filled with fear. We need to remember that his perfect love will cast out all fear. And that when we are walking in his spirit, there is freedom, freedom from anxieties and fears and worries. The fullness of joy can be found in his presence. So no wonder Cain is feeling like this is more than he can bear. I would be too. This is a lot that's falling on his shoulders and he's feeling the weight of it. But even in that place, even in the big stuff up of killing his brother, even in that place, God meets him and he provides for him in those moments. You'll remember in chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they're feeling vulnerable in their nakedness. They're before God and, and they realize the shame that they're carrying. And God does this beautiful thing. It's so uncalled for, but it shows us the nature and the character of God. He skins an animal and gives them clothing to, to cover them from their nakedness, to give them a sense of security, to give them such a sense of love and acceptance in those moments. So God goes out of his way and he does that to say, I know you've stuffed up, but I'm going to provide for you. Again, with Cain, we see here, he's stuffed up big. He's made the wrong choice, even though God gave him the, the option. But what God does then, even though... Cain is saying, everyone's going to kill me. God says, no, not so. 
Such a short little powerful phrase, not so. I will put my mark on you so that anyone who comes will know that they are not to kill you. And if they do, my vengeance will be sevenfold. What does that speak of? It really speaks of a God who is willing to meet us even when we've stuffed up and to give us this beautiful comfort and security to know that he is with us. And even when we put so much more blame on ourselves, the beautiful faithfulness and the grace of God says, you know what, I am going to provide for you in that moment. I'm going to come beside you and be faithful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, we, we get this, um, this, this verse around temptation and feeling like it's more than we can bear. It reminds us of the faithfulness of God. It says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. God, not us, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. God provides. God comes in those moments. God is the one who is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond when we can bear, what we can bear. But when we do stuff up, when we do choose the wrong option, when we choose to do what is not right, then he still gives us a way to endure it. We all know what, what it's like to find similarities with Cain. I don't know if you've read that passage before and you've ever thought, oh, I'm like Cain. <laughs> Probably not, because hopefully you haven't killed your brother. <laughs> but I think we all know what it's like to perhaps give God our second option, not our best to treat God like an insurance policy, hoping that when we go through the motions externally, that they cover up for maybe the internal motivations that are skewed. We all know what that might be like. And what I love is that we're not only given Genesis 4, but we're given another 63 books of the Bible to help us see that even when all these people, including us, but all these people in the scriptures, when they... Uh, fall short when they are tempted and they don't do what is right. When they receive the wisdom of the Lord, but they still choose their own way. Even in the rest of these 63 books found in this Bible, we see the guiding hand of God. We see his faithfulness. We see him help steer people in the right direction. And even when they ignore him, we see him extend his grace. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, and he said, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hebrews 4, this is one of my like, you know those verses that you kind of hold on to, and they're the ones that I don't know, you've got in your car or on your screensaver or something. This is one of them for me because I find such comfort in knowing that our God is a God who understands, who has compassion for where we're coming from. Hebrews 4 verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. 
We don't serve a God who doesn't get it. We don't serve a God who is so distant, who thinks that what we're doing and what we're going through is beneath him or outside of his realms of understanding. But yet we, we serve a God who sent his son and even Jesus was tempted just as we are. Sin crouches at the door. Sin crouched at the door for Jesus and temptation was there, yet he did not sin. So we're given this beautiful model of a God who understands, he gets it, he sympathises with it, he knows what it feels like to be tempted. But we're also given Jesus, who is our perfect author and perfecter of our faith, the one who gives us an example, the one who we can continue to look to because he will not let us down. He said that it is finished. He is the one who did not cave to temptation. So unlike Cain, who approaches God's God's throne with lies and with shame and uh, with guilt, we're instructed in just the next verse. It says, Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. We can approach the throne of God with such confidence because of the grace that he has for us. In this verse, it says that sin crouches at the door. Its desire is for you. But what I know is that someone else stands at the door and he knocks and he asks to be let in. Revelations 3.20 says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Sin crouches and its desire is for you. But we're instructed to rule over it. And we can do that because there's someone else at the door. Jesus is standing at the door today. And he's knocking and he's saying, will you invite me in? Will you invite me in so that we can be in relationship with one another? That we can have a meal together? So that we can chat over what's going on in your life? That I can walk with you every day? That I can be your companion? But more than that, I can be your saviour. I can help you through everything because I get it. I know what it's like but let me give you what you need so that you can rule over it. Even though sin is present, it doesn't deem us powerless. In Christ, we have all that we need to be able to, with His strength, with His grace, with His faithfulness, be able to walk through the trials. So I wonder if this morning you've seen a little different side to Cain and Abel. I hope so. I hope you remember that it's not a story of comparison. It's not saying that what you've got isn't good enough or that what the person next to you have is better. That's not the story here. It's saying that God is concerned with the posture of your heart. He's concerned with what's going on inside you, what's going on with with your mind, your spirit, your soul. And he's wanting you to bring the best of that to him, not seeing him as an insurance policy or an easy way out or what you have to do, but rather something that you're wanting to do as an adoration and an act of worship unto him. So it's not a question of a comparison. God looks at the inward appearance, not the external. It's also not a story of if you stuff up or make the wrong choice or walk in the darkness that then you're disqualified from his presence. That's not what's going on here either. 
God recklessly chases after you and longs for you to be with him. That's the story that we read. That's the God we see in this in this verses. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking that I've got God wrong. I thought he was a God of judgment. I thought he was comparing me to everyone. I thought that he didn't want me to, I wasn't worthy to be in his presence. If that's shifted for you today and you actually want to invite him, you want to open the door that he's knocking on so that he can eat with you. We're just going to say a prayer now and it's not a magical prayer, but it's a deep spiritual prayer. It's one where you're accepting him into your life. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, you are so holy and you are so worthy of our praise. But Lord, forgive us for the times that we've misrepresented you or understood you falsely, Lord. God, today, as you offer us such grace through your son, Jesus, who stands at the door of our heart and he knocks because he wants to be let in and and to move into the home of our heart, Lord, and to be with us and eat with us and have fellowship with us. Lord Jesus, for those whose doors you are knocking on right now, God, will you reveal yourself to them as they let you in this morning or later today or at some point, Lord, will they feel the overwhelming sense of your love, that nothing that they've done can separate them from the love that you have for them. Lord, I pray that you will fill them with your spirit. Will they sense your grace, your peace, your love? And God, will you strengthen them as they walk alongside you every day? In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that kind of decision to let Jesus in today, we would just love to celebrate with you and pray with you and answer any questions that you might have around what's next. Uh, So if that was something that was big for you today, we would love to pray with you. So come down the front after the service and any one of our team uh, would be really honoured to to have those conversations and prayers with you. But now we're going to respond in a time of worship uh, and we're going to sing of God's amazing grace for us. So would you stand and join us as we worship?